This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. In this GHIL joint lecture in cooperation with the Modern German History Seminar, IHR, Ute Freva talks about the power of emotions in German history. Everyone knows from experience that emotions are powerful. They motivate us to act in a certain way. They color our experiences and shape our memories. But what impact do they have on history? What do we learn about history from looking through the lens of emotions? And what do we learn about emotions by applying a historical perspective? The talk explores those questions with regard to Germany in the 20th century, a period of dramatic changes that deeply affected people's lives, mindsets and feelings. Ute Frevert is director of the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin, where she founded the Center for the History of Emotions in 2008. She has previously been a professor of modern history at the universities of Berlin, Konstanz, Bielefeld and Yale. She is a corresponding fellow of the British Academy. Her book Powerful Emotions in German History will be published by Cambridge University Press later this year. I've been in this room many times for conferences, but also for lectures, but never with masks. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm very happy that I can take off mine. I was also very happy to, to be invited here because it gives me the, uh, the opportunity to actually introduce my recent work that has come, not, not Quite, recent, quite as recent as the one that Mark just mentioned, but the one that came out before in 2020 on powerful emotions. And now we'll see a, uh, an English translation. Not, it's not a translation. I actually revised it for the English publication by uh, Cambridge University Press. I hope had hoped for this year, but it will probably take some more time in, in next year. The general question that I ask in this very book and uh, that I will also ask today is how do emotions make history and how are they themselves shaped by history? The focus of the book is on Germany's 20th century, a century that has seen five different political regimes with borders, territories and populations constantly changing. It's thus an ideal case study for examining history through the lens of feelings, passions, affects and shedding light on their transformative power. So let us first ask what do emotions do? To give a very short answer, they mobilize people and they motivate them to do certain things while refraining from doing others. These decisions then can alter the course of history. The power of emotions was there for all to see after February 25, 24, 2022. There was outrage, not just in my country, outrage, indignation, empathy, but also fear. 
the uh, power of emotions was equally palpable in 2015 at the height of the so-called refugee crisis. Many Germans were shocked and enraged by images from camps along the Balkan route. Hungary's brutal treatment of refugees was considered a scandal as a major tabloid stated. When Chancellor Angela Merkel put an end to the scandal by allowing the refugees into Germany, she acted on a reasonable supposition. The people coming to Europe on their march of hope were determined and nothing short of physical violence would break that determination. The public sympathies had already been sparked by the photo of a three-year-old Syrian child drowned in the Mediterranean. Violence would thus not be acceptable. Given this context, the Chancellor's decision to keep the borders open seemed without alternative. But emotions like empathy and compassion are not forces of nature. They do not just rush in and rob people of their minds. As recent scholarship from anthropology and cultural studies has elucidated, emotions are shaped by culture as well as by personal and collective experience. They feed on socio-political and social-cultural repertoires that invest them with nuance and meaning. How and what people feel always depends on what they have learned about emotions. Knowledge and experience play a significant part in the construction of emotions. In Germany, images of desperate people fleeing from their war-torn home in 2015 and 2022 again, evoke memories of the flight and forced migration that millions of families had gone through during and after the Second World War. At the same time, the sight of tall fences intended to keep refugees away from Hungary struck a dissonant chord with the unforgettable euphoria felt when the Austrian-Hungarian border as part of the Iron Curtain opened in the summer of 1989, allowing GDR citizens to cross in large numbers. Alongside personal experiences and collective memories, social institutions and the media influence how and which emotions are felt and expressed. Without the constant stream of images that filled TV screens in 2015, people's sensitivity towards what was happening and their willingness to help would hardly have been so great. Families and schools also leave an imprint on how people feel and handle those feelings. The same goes for the workplace, the football stadium, and the concert hall, as well as for choirs, associations, social movements, and political parties, to mention just a few social institutions. Everywhere, people encounter rules and practices that encourage some emotions but label others taboo. Those rules are further differentiated by gender and age. In earlier centuries, when religion and the church dominated how life was lived, 
more than any other institution, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews were raised to feel distinct emotions. Thus, emotions not only make history, they also made by history, and they thus have a history. For one thing, the occasions and contexts that summon certain emotions change. The all-pervasive fear of war and violence after two world wars was basically unknown before 1914. Around 1900, nobody was afraid of terrorist attacks and climate change. Terrorist attacks, maybe the heads of state or the crowned heads of states could have been afraid, but nobody else. Instead, they were, they were fearful of epidemics like cholera and typhus. As modern medicine and hygiene began to defeat infectious disease, the fear of them waned. By the time COVID-19 hit Europe in early 2020, many people no longer knew what it felt like to be frightened of plagues. At the same time, fears that are still with us today felt different in the past than they do now. Towards the end of the 19th century, many people suffered and died from cancer. And I'm here drawing on the new book by Bettina Hitzer, which will also soon be published in English. Nevertheless, patients, cancer patients, had to contend with other interpretations and social perceptions of their illness than they do today. This clearly affected their emotions. Even when they were facing death, they did not openly admit that their fear, as is now both common and encouraged. Here, too, faith played a decisive role. Those who firmly believed in life after death could pass away more serenely than those gazing into the void. The social and cultural framing of emotions becomes further apparent when we study the ups and downs of what Talcott Parsons called effective expressive emphasis. Some anthropologists distinguish between hot and cold cultures. While the former celebrate innovation and creativity, the latter permit little change. But hot and cold can also serve as measures of how intensely emotions and passions are experienced and expressed in a particular society. It was not for nothing that the political style of West Germany's early years was defined by appeals for sobriety and objectivity. The first federal president, that's how he looked like, Theodore Heuss, regularly admonished his fellow citizens to remain sober and without illusion, thereby invoking the bad time of Nazi Germany with its hot and excessive emotionality. Such reminders are one component of a politics of emotion that attempts to regulate a society's emotional economy. Another is formed by statements about which emotions are good and acceptable and which not. How much national pride should be tolerated before things go too far? How much solidarity and empathy is needed to keep the society from freezing over? 
who is deserving of these emotions and who does not qualify and on which grounds? The answers to these questions are neither simple nor matters of consensus. Democracies cannot dictate emotional politics from above. Citizens do listen more or less attentively to what presidents or prime ministers tell them at Christmas, New Year's Eve and other occasions throughout the year. But they also pursue their own aims, both alone and with others that are bound up with their place of residence, their social status, gender, age, religion, and worldview. The greater value people place on their own individuality and autonomy and uniqueness, the more that they prioritize emotional autonomy and independence. Such emphasis is part of the culture that defines the contemporary society of singularities, as Andreas Reckwitz has coined this uh, expression, but it neglects and overlooks a crucial fact. Certainly everyone has, and for the most part, knows their own feelings. However, emotions are not just subjective private phenomena. If they were, people would not be able to communicate about them and through them. The language of emotions, which comprises words as well as gestures, would be incomprehensible if emotions could not be discussed and shared. Still, just because emotions have a language and can be communicated does not necessarily mean they actually get spoken about. Not everyone wears their heart on their sleeve, keeps a diary, or has friends with whom they share their most intimate feelings. Not everyone reads novels to learn about emotions they might otherwise never have felt. Who downloads mindfulness apps and who subscribes to Higa or Wokeness? All these practices have a historical and social specificity. Not every culture, era or milieu observes them. This said, you might wonder how such observations about the nature and power of emotions can inform the writing of 20th century German history. What new knowledge can we uncover by analyzing the history of emotions? Let me give you a few hints. The expression German angst has become rather common. Like kindergarten, blitzkrieg and schadenfreude, angst found its way into the English language. Does this mean that angst is a specifically German emotion? Are Germans particularly susceptible to angst and fear? And if so, of which sort? One may think of the proverbial German fear of inflation or the fear of acid rain and dying forests that concerned many people in the 1980s. One wonders where such fears originated and what they led to, and who coined the term German angst and for what reason. Frank Bies in his recent book tackles some of these questions. Since 2010, the Duden Dictionary has contained an entry for the word Wutbürger or enraged citizen. In the same year, Stefan Essel, born in Berlin in 1917, published the manifesto Time for Outrage, 
and in Yifu. Millions of people bought and read it. Were they all enraged citizens? That depends on how one understands the term and what significance one ascribes to it. Some people proudly self-identify with it while others utter it as an insult. Normally, anger is not the first quality that comes to mind when one thinks of an even-tempered rational adult. After all, since the 19th century, the ability to control one's anger has been a cornerstone of a middle-class upbringing. But what about anger towards the powerful and the quiet grumblings of the powerless? At what historical junctures have these grumblings grown loud and impossible to ignore. Over the last few years, envy has been a topic of heated political debate, which actually is nothing new. In the 1920s, right-wing parties accused those on the left of being jealous of the better off and denying them the comforts they had inherited or earned. In 1994, Christian Democrats countered, quote, jealous socialist chants with a categorical yes to merit. In these instances, the charge of envy or jealousy served to defame a political opponent, a function it continues to have. Envious people, it is said, are unwilling to exert themselves and prefer to pilfer from others' pockets. Yet this obscures the more fundamental question about the relationship between envy and competition, a keystone of the capitalist economic and social system. It also calls for a re-examination of the concepts of merit and performance and the ways in which they are measured. How do people grapple with disparities in individual performance and competitive disadvantages? And what precedents and experiences do they draw on? How does envy relate to solidarity and the expectation that the better off should support the less well off? In recent times, politicians have started to claim humility for themselves. They humbly accept disastrous election results and they humbly celebrate victories. They put their egos in the backseat and bow to the will of the voters. This is somewhat surprising since the word humility once closely tied to religious language and practice had long left our active vocabulary. Now it has somewhat miraculously returned and occupies a space beyond the religious sphere with career guides advising readers on how to become more humble in order to gain other sympathy and better reach one's aims. Unlike humility, humiliation has remained a word on everyone's lips. East Germans feel humiliated by West Germans women by men, pupils by teachers, employees by managers. In international relations too, humiliation plays an outsized role as in the long chain of intentional and perceived disparagements exchanged by Germany and France between 1870 and 1945. 
how did humility as an individual emotional disposition and humiliation as a political strategy unfold during a century in which positions of power and powerlessness were flipped so often and so rapidly? Love is doubtless one of the most powerful emotion words. But love is not just a word. It's lived, experienced, and negotiated. It forges the most important relationships that people enter into in their lives. And its quality changes over a person's lifespan. On the one hand, this transformation occurs in its own unique way for every couple in every child-parent relationship, in every friendship. Still, these deeply personal emotions are not only observed, commented on, and evaluated by others, they are also defined and framed from outside. People in the 20th and 21st centuries lived and live in a world permeated by media. Advice columns, films, novels, and advertisements evoke expectations of what relationships are supposed to look like. And they also offer consumers' products and techniques to optimize them. At the same time, laws impose more or less restrictive rules on who can be in a romantic relationship and what this means in terms of rights and obligations. Only since 2017 have same-sex couples in Germany been able to consecrate their love in marriage under the protection of the law. The Catholic Church continues to refuse to marry them, while some Protestant churches have come around. In the 1950s, both churches still resisted and violently resisted what they deemed mixed marriages between Catholics and Protestants. In 1935, the National Socialist State had prohibited marriages between Jewish and non-Jewish Germans. A church and state not only controlled the behavior of wives and husbands, they also sanctioned extramarital love. Up until the 1970s, unmarried couples were not allowed to share a hotel room in many places on the grounds that they were living in wild marriages rooted in fornication. People who felt suffocated by the tight corset of bourgeois morality fought for the loosening of such prohibitions and restrictions. They won the support of a public that was gradually becoming more liberal and chose to define love and sexuality among consenting adults as a strictly private matter. New gender roles did their part to make the bonds and pleasures of love more dynamic, diverse, and colorful. Thus, even seemingly private emotions are socially framed. They change over the course of an individual's life just as they do over the course of history. Conversely, public and official relations depend upon personal preferences and distastes. On the international political stage, the ability of politicians to get along with one another and trust each other is enormously significant. When social democratic politician Egon Barr 
died in 2015 at the age of 93, former US Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, only a year younger and still alive, as we uh, just learned, did not pass up the chance to travel to the funeral of his lifelong friend in Berlin. Their friendship had got off to a rocky start though, and their political goals and the paths they took to reach them diverged widely. As national security advisor to President Richard Nixon, Kissinger was bothered that the architect of West Germany's Ostpolitik seemed to be, quote, free of any sentimental attachment to the United States. He thought that Barr, again, quote, was obviously not as unquestioningly dedicated to Western unity as the people we have known in the previous government, end of quote. In Kissinger's view, Barr placed too much weight on friendship with the East. Only years later did Kissinger's distrust turn into admiration and personal friendship, which, as he stated in his eulogy, was reflected in American-German relations today. He proclaimed that, quote, our ultimate task is to eventually tame suspicions and submerge ambivalence in friendship. Only then could serious diplomacy take place. These examples reveal some of the multifarious ways in which emotions are interwoven into history. They shape human relationships, whether in the family or in political life. They alternately enable and inhibit understanding and collaboration. They are deciding factors in whether something is considered significant or insignificant. People who feel strongly about an issue act differently than those who are apathetic about it. But emotions are not simply present or absent. They live on in memories and influence future behavior. The kind of sentimental attachment to a country that Kissinger thought Barr lacked usually begins with a personal experience. One spends time and meets friends there, becomes acquainted with a different way of life. All that gives rise to sympathy and affection, can give rise to sympathy and affection, which then molds the visitor's future perspectives. Emotions, as mentioned before, are not exclusively singular, subjective, or individual. They adhere to social conventions and rules, both explicit and implicit. Every community, whether a long-standing institution or a short-lived coalition, every community demands some degree of conformity in the emotions members can feel and the intensity in which they feel them. Achieving that conformity necessitates practice, including sanctions for what is perceived as deviant and unacceptable. If you expressed favorable feelings for the Soviet Union in 1950s West Germany, you had a problem. Even it was not quite as severe as that of East Germans who celebrated their enthusiasm for rock and roll or the American way of life. Whatever their object might be, how emotions are expressed and lived out has always been subject to social scrutiny. 
Young people in particular experiment with different emotional styles in their peer groups. After these styles become the norm, the next generation, or at least some cohort of it, discards them in favor of its own. In the 1970s, feminism paved the way for a culture of betroffenheit, of being affected by the world's ills and injustices, and showing empathy for those who suffer. The 1990s followed it with a more masculine cult of coolness, a rehashing of an emotional style that had already crested in the 1920s and 1950s. Modeling one's own behavior on it meant engaging in a sort of detached irony, acting as if one were not moved by things. Emotional exuberance was made taboo, distance rewarded, nonchalance celebrated. The more a person sought to embody these styles, the more they influenced that person's own feelings and actions. As early as 1877, Wilhelm Wundt, the founder of experimental psychology, discovered that emotional styles and the feelings experienced by those who follow them mutually affect one another. His primary examples were the famed professional mourners in Mediterranean societies for whom he wrote, the expression itself elicits the emotion. Laughter yoga works similarly. I remember an experiment that I only very reluctantly participated in at first. It involved a large group of people who hardly knew one another. A coach led us through a series of stretches and breathing exercises, finally having us act as if we were laughing. The effect was stunning and not just for me. At the end of the session, I did feel happier, more joyful, more relaxed, and my interactions with the others showed it. The experiment followed a principle developed by psychologists around 1900. We don't laugh because we are happy. We are happy because we laugh. Around the world, there are thousands of groups whose members get together just to laugh. Schools, daycares, clinics, senior centers, businesses, and fitness clubs have all adopted the exercise. Some people claim that laughter has healing properties and that they want to cultivate harmony and amity, while others do it to become better adjusted and more productive. Whatever people's motivations and goals, laughter yoga illustrates how emotions can be consciously evoked and stabilized. There are techniques that can bring body and mind in tune and synchronize them with others. In earlier times, religious institutions excelled in creating such techniques and environments. During the 20th century, media and film in particular took over. Advertising to employs bodily and psychological knowledge to nudge consumers to purchase certain commodities. Last but not least, politicians and governments engage architecture, lighting, music, and other techniques to create emotional atmospheres 
that make people more receptive to highly effective messages. National socialism was by no means the only political system that sought to manipulate people's emotions with overpowering theatrics. Socialist East Germany also showed great interest in shaping and controlling what and how citizens feel. Democratic societies too manage emotions, if by less martial grandiose means. Yet there is no guarantee that their efforts will succeed. Even if there are general expectations and guidelines, individuals are free to decide which advice and conventions they want to follow. In the book, I explore the politics of emotion in Germany since the turn of the 20th century. Such politics left traces that the historian can uncover in a wealth of sources, personal letters and diaries, court records and judicial decisions, poems and song lyrics, graffiti, newspapers, posters, and advertisements. Speeches by emperors, state presidents, and prime ministers constituted one part of the emotionally charged communication that defined the modern era of mass politics and mass participation. On the other side, citizens began to speak for themselves. Many wrote to the authorities telling of their grievances, desires, hopes, and fears. Public archives contain countless letters from people from all social strata, men and women, old and young. They clearly felt the need to pour their hearts out to their leaders and articulate their joyful feelings as well as their anger and indignation. In 1949, Federal President Hoyce received a few hundred letters a day. Five years later, it was hundreds, if not thousands, that he at least fleetingly looked over and when they had a personal character, personally responded to. Not all such letters have been preserved. After 1933, Hitler's chancellery tended to only save nice letters. Despite these filters, the writings that have been retained are a rich resource. They give a voice to those who are often muted in the official memory of the nation. The same is true of private papers and collections, some of which serendipitously ended up in my possession. Among them were a mother's handwritten recollections of her son who had died in the First World War, as well as letters sent between former classmates who were called to the front in 1941. None of these sources just ever talked of just one single emotion. Just like in everyday life, emotions in the source material appear in mixed form. Still, the book analyzes emotions individually, not as an entangled mass. The alphabetical order lends it the character of a truncated dictionary, starting with anger, and ending with trust. In German, it's A to Z, <laughs> angst, Zuneigung. Why did I decide on a lexicon of emotions rather than a chronologically ordered narrative 
that might identify moments in German history when emotional styles and dominant patterns shifted. This was one of the, the criticism the book got when it appeared in Germany. Plausible too would have been a thematic history. I might have investigated events and developments in order to dissect which emotions fuse together and how they mutually reinforced, weakened or neutralized one another. But then the historicity of emotions, their malleability over time and space would have gone lost and fallen prey to the assumption supported by, by many psychological theories that emotions are substantially stable entities that share the same phenomenology and physiology. Love is love, anger is anger, and has been so since time immortal. Yet how do we know that? And why should we take the assumption for granted? If emotions are deeply embedded in social, economic, political, cultural environments, they also change with those environments. In this vein, love did not mean the same thing and was not felt alike in 1900 and 2020. And the same holds true for hate and disgust, fear, honor, or humility. Such changes in the experience and meaning of emotions would be lost in a narrative that closely followed the chronology of historical events and processes. That is why I decided in favor of the lexical format. It showcases both how and where emotions influenced history and the degree to which they were themselves shaped by specific developments and circumstances. Another benefit is that readers can pick up the book and read at their leisure. They do not have to go from the first page to the last, but can be led along by their personal curiosity. Every chapter is self-contained. Speaking of curiosity, perhaps it seems strange that my emotional lexicon contains curiosity. Some might disagree that curiosity or honor or humility are even emotions. Contemporary psychology textbooks do not list them as such. Instead, they generally concern with the so-called basic emotions, six or seven in number, among them anger, joy, fear, disgust, surprise, sadness, and sometimes, if it's seven, contempt. Yet history knows a far more colorful and diverse range of emotions, including empathy, hope, hate, belonging, trust, shame and pride, as well as curiosity, honor and humility. German encyclopedias and dictionaries of the 19th and early 20th century did not call them emotions, but Gemütsbewegungen, movements of the soul. soul. Emotions as the all-encompassing general term only entered the German language much later in the footsteps of Anglo-Saxon psychology. Such scientific import not only contributed to the shrinking of emotion words and concepts in academic discourse and everyday communication, it also highlights the problems of translation. The German term Gemüt is synonymous neither with soul nor with mind as it's often translated. Legions of writers have spilled ink explaining what it meant 
how it defined Germans in contrast to, say, French people, and why this was utterly important. Having a proper and deep Gemüt allegedly characterized a true German and distinguished him or her from non-Germans. The Gemüt was formed through social interaction and culture. Songs and prayers, poems and novels left their mark, especially during childhood and adolescence. The Gemüt hosted all kinds of feelings and brought them into order, elevating some over others. It was, in short, equivalent to and in charge of a person's emotional economy. Gemüt thus comes with a cultural and historical baggage that is very difficult to capture in translation. The same holds true for many other German emotion words. Take Geborgenheit. The English noun belonging, that's how I translate, or we translated it in the book, does not do justice to the complexity of meaning inherent in the German original. The verb bergen connotes to salvage, to rescue, to harbor, to retrieve, to save. Someone who is geborgen feels secure, protected, warmly embraced. Belonging only fleetingly touches upon these feelings, which have a physical as well as mental substance. But there is no better solution, and we will have to do with the translation that comes closest. This said, there is a lesson to be learned. When emotion words do not map onto each other in different languages, they prove the point that feelings themselves are culturally specific. This sets limits on the universalistic approach to emotions. It also invites us to keep an eye on chronology. If there is synchronic difference, we might expect diachronic difference as well. Again, language drops crucial clues. Even when it appears to remain unchanged, and people continue to speak of love and hatred, envy and trust, they might refer to different feelings than those former generations had experienced under the same name. It is therefore of utmost importance to dissect the semantics and references of such language and to put them in historical context. Certain emotion words, however, have virtually disappeared in recent decades. What do we make of this? Can emotions be nameless? Can they endure without being addressed in private or in public? Words are semantic units that convey meanings and connect a feeling to other experiences and expectations. Without words, feelings would remain unintelligible and non-negotiable. Spoken and written language thus serves as a treasure trove of human emotions, notwithstanding the added value of nonverbal bodily means of communication. What distinguishes emotions from perceptions, thought and opinions is the high degree of bodily stimulation they elicit. A person who loves or hates, or feels curious or humiliated, senses it viscerally and expresses it through body language. The German word for the kind of affection lived out in a friendship, Zuneigung, 
has a bodily gesture written into its very name. One inclines oneself towards another person. One seeks nearness and physical contact, even though we have to do without it during the current pandemic. The forms these movements and dispositions take vary among cultures and across history. Who is allowed to come close to whom is a matter of social convention. That men and women, politicians included, greet each other with a hug and kiss is a relatively new phenomenon and is by no means standard practice in every part of the world. Physical actions and reactions depend on how a person relates to their own body. Some view it as a highly efficient machine, while others would prefer to protect it in a bubble. Cultural scripts and stereotypes exist for both. Societies and social groups construct images of the body and disseminate them through media. This has immediate consequences for how emotions are perceived and expressed. Conceptualizing the body as hard or soft, permeable or steely, resilient or fragile, all influences the intensity and quality of what people feel. Over the course of the 20th century, the, the mechanization of industrial labor increased only to be pushed aside by digitalization and the expansion of the service economy. These shifts contributed to the coming and going of a plurality of emotional and bodily regimes, as did new forms of motorized movement and broader participation in competitive sports. The medicalization of almost every aspect of life, along with the growing popularity of therapy, have also done their part to alter our approaches to our bodies. How shifts in bodily regimes affected emotional practices is still widely unknown and needs far more research. You thus won't find much of it in the book, unfortunately. At the same time, emotions are not exclusively a corporeal matter. They also have a cognitive component and are bound up with evaluations and interpretations of experience. Compared to purely intellectual ruminations, however, their practical import is exponentially greater. They spur action, lift people out of their seats, give them pause, and change their orientation towards life and the world. This is, and here my circle closes, what lends emotions their historical force. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.